Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a team of researchers with whom I have worked closely over the past few months. Together as a group of first and second year students, we participated in the 2021 Undergraduate Big Data Challenge hosted by the STEM Fellowship, where we won first place being awarded with the JMIR Info Infodemic Innovation Award. We wrote a paper titled The Plebeian Algorithm, A Democratic Approach to Censorship and Moderation, which is currently being published. We've also done some research into carbon pricing models and human trafficking, placing second in the hashtag challenge for climate action datathon by Convergence Tech. The team consists of myself and three of my close friends, two of whom could be here today. Russell Frost completed his second year of software engineering at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario. In all of our many conversations, he consistently brings up deep questions and is able to get to the abstract core of our brainstorm sessions. Also, Kai Fusilatiser. I met Kai in our first year of high school where he became strongly involved in the Sir Winston Churchill Collegiate and Vocational Institute Robotics Club, taking the leadership involvement in his first year of high school. Oh, sorry, in his final year of high school. At Superior Collegiate and Vocational Institute, um, Kai took, um, sorry, at Superior and Collegiate, Collegiate and Vocational Institute, Kai took this passion and is currently entering his first year of mechanical engineering at Confederation College, also in Thunder Bay. Today we have um, been able to function, sorry, together, we've been able to function extremely well as a team going by the pseudonym Aurora Borealis. We met one another to, through the International Baccalaureate Program in Thunder Bay through our high school. I know that we've personally learned a lot from these, or I personally learned a lot from these friends, and I hope that everyone enjoys um, this conversation and feels the same. Welcome to the podcast, Russell and Kai. Thanks for having us How are you guys doing? Oh, not too bad yourself. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I don't like uh, this software, but um, we won't uh, name the software, but yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Um, so first off, I'd like to start by chatting a little bit about um, just some like research, um, general research areas, um, just broad research topics. So I'm wondering, I guess I'd, I'd like to start just by going through both of you um, and asking, what do you like? What what do you guys like about research? What interests you about research? Um, what sort of topics? Um, I guess are you interested in researching? Perhaps in the future, um, that kind of stuff. Like, what's what interests you with research? Let's start with Kai. Okay, uh, sounds good. So. For me, research is something that I think I, I certainly will get more involved in in, in the future. Uh, one of the biggest goals for me in my life is to really go into some sort of research and development um, of whatever corporation or company or government uh, that might be. Uh, it's something I'm really interested in doing and developing new and innovative solutions uh, for the, some of the problems that we, that we face today. Uh, I've recently become very interested in, in trying to address things like um, uh, uh, living conditions for for places in, in like in northern communities kind of thing because that's somewhat of a of a problem here in northern northwestern Ontario. We do have certain northern communities who have kind of limited access to to, to resources, materials, and just the overall cold and, and temperatures make it fairly difficult for living. Uh, so that's something I've kind of become interested in, and I think I might want to pursue as a career goal uh, with mechanical engineering with engineering. Um, the reason why I, I kind of uh, also just kind of got into it was I, I think the idea of research development is a really interesting idea of, of looking into what's what's currently been done and how can we take 
the model that's currently been used? Can we understand it thoroughly and try to improve upon it, add upon it, all kinds of things such as that. So it's certainly something I, I find really intriguing. And there's been all kinds of research papers that I've read uh, for even just, um, um, uh, what's the word, uh, leisure activity, honestly, just because it's, it's very fascinating to me to learn more and to understand more about these different uh, areas of knowledge. So, yeah. Russell? Yes, yeah, so um, when it comes to researching, there's usually two different reasons that I'll research. Either A, um, to answer some sort of question, or B, to fuel some sort of uh, curiosity or, or need, if you know what I mean. And that need is the the need to learn something new about a particular field. For me, um, I really enjoy software engineering. I really enjoy those abstract logic problems. Um, I find them really fascinating. I also really enjoy studies of metaphysics. Um, I've been reading a lot of philosophy recently. Um, <clears throat> after seeing an interesting lecture um, on YouTube, which is a great place to find random lectures that professors will just post. Mm. Um, highly recommended to get free university <laughs> courses, honestly. Um, and he was talking about the links between uh, programmers and philosophers and how certain views of uh, metaphysics also line up with certain uh, structures that people use to program. Things like object-oriented programming is kind of like the idea of um, things having um, some sort of true identity and then existing on Earth only as manifestations of those ideas. That's kind of what object-oriented programming is. You create the class, which is the true idea of something, and then you instantiate objects of that class, um, which is the things that the users will be interacting with. So, I don't know, there's a lot of really interesting links there that... Uh, and that that would be mainly what I, I think I'm really interested in, is like where, how far does that link go? Mm. Awesome. So one final thing before we start going into the plebeian algorithm, um, what, uh, just a a quick tip from both of you, I'd love to get on like for young people interested like like us interested in getting into research, what would you, what would be like the one thing you'd recommend and try and keep it like not cliched if that's at all possible try and give like the least cliche answer you can to the problem hmm. um i honestly have found that when it comes to research the, the, when i when i do the most or the best work um i, I mean for the first one i would say is finding a group of people to work on uh, this project with. I find doing these projects, like the project that we worked on, was really enjoyable when we were working as a team. Like we would pull all-nighters, you know, working until 3 a.m. in the morning, quite literally. Um, and even though we were working just tirelessly on these on, the, on this paper and, and on, on this research, it was still very fascinating and enjoyable for me. Like the, the part of it being enjoy, uh, enjoying should I think be a, a primary factor in it. because when you do something that you enjoy and you're you're interested in, 
um, that makes it makes it so you're you're more productive, right? I mean, I've had so many times. In fact, this is kind of ties into my other point is is just having a passion and having these rants. Like if you have anything like this, this really interesting thought that you want to pursue, I think as as Russell mentioned, like just continue pursuing it, like continue looking to articles. Like something I've done uh, is spending hours upon hours just sifting through books and and websites and things such as that, just looking at more and more information because a topic uh, was was uh, somewhat interesting to me at a certain point, right? So I think having and trying to uh, have this kind of passion for research is really important trying to find a group of people you can surround yourself who are equally invested in this kind of research to kind of act as this this kind of energy like this energy pool that you can take from to continuously kind of keep you keep, uh, keep you going uh, and then just the sharing of knowledge right like research in itself human human progression and evolution has really been really been made possible because of human sharing right so having a group of people i find <clears throat> really just discuss ideas with them bounce ideas off and brainstorm is is really beneficial in, in so many ways and even though that's something i think might be somewhat cliche you know working having brainstorm ideas and and sessions and trying to have multiple minds on, on a problem it really is a a very a very good um um it's a very good cliche, honestly. It's 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 really good to it's have. Almost mystical to some extent. It eh? really is. It neat. really is. In some mm. ways, it's it's kind of weird because it, it can also be somewhat addictive. I found, right? It becomes mm. so you become so enraptured and just having this this fun with 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 people and and doing this research and and just spending time with people, right? It's mm. it's honestly, especially when you have a common goal that you're working at. I find it becomes much more enjoyable than simply just hanging out with someone, right? You actually are trying to work together to finish something, and by God, you're going to finish that thing. And, and by having this group of people that are still all set at, uh, upon the same goal, the same objective, it becomes so, so uh, thrilling. You just kind of keep pushing yourself to keep going and keep going. And yeah, so that's what I really would suggest for anyone interested in doing this. Awesome. Russell? Um, I would say that something that's really important would be um, when you're researching, try talking to people who are educated in other fields mm -hmm. to see what their takes are. Because oftentimes I think that'll give you unique insights that you wouldn't normally really think of. Um, a great example of this is throughout our paper, um, I was talking to my uh, my my uh, Zeta, who is an anthropologist. So um, I got a really interesting viewpoint from him about you know some of the ideas in the paper. So I don't know, talking to just lay people as well, it helps you to learn how to communicate the idea a little bit better. Um, if you talk to somebody about like what you're researching and they seem bored then you're not communicating it effectively right um yeah also making sure that your body doesn't phase in and out of existence constantly like mine is is helpful when doing research um sometimes when typing you know <laughs> just my arm disappears and it's really inconvenient but what can you it's do in huge, this it's a huge problem amongst uh, software engineers man you know 
just happens sometimes. <laughs> um, I actually, if I may, I really did want to mention that point, uh, Russell. That was a really well-made point about uh, just being able to to communicate well, and that's something I don't think enough people, especially in this field, uh, are well versed in. I mean, it's something I've I've listened to speakers like, um, oh, I think uh, Richard Dawkins and um, who else? Oh. Neuro, neuro, he's a, a neurologist, a uh, famous American neurologist and um, um, atheist. Uh, I can't remember his name. It doesn't come to my mind right now. But no many times they, they've talked about, oh no, I think it was also Neil deGrasse Tyson. That was another one who had mentioned it. Where, you know, as scientists and mathematicians, they're great with the numbers. They're great with uh, actually creating the papers, but actually communicating these ideas, especially to the layperson. A lot of scientists and mathematicians don't really have a good way. They kind of suck at it, right? They don't really have a great way of communicating these ideas to the common person. And that could be a really big challenge and provide uh, a lot of difficulty because as much as these ideas are great and you've written this, these beautiful papers, it's really only if you communicate them well and that people, you get people interested that these ideas start to sprawl out and really start to flourish. Right. And so, yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with with Russell's point and trying to to try to communicate better, bringing these ideas up just to family members that, you know, or friends. Right. Just bouncing uh, these ideas off and trying to express it to them in the best way possible and trying to find ways that might be might be better explained. Right. Uh, in many ways, that will also give you a better idea of, of what your what your actual solution or proposal is. Right. I mean, I think it was um, was it Einstein or. I know it's something where by teaching a subject, you become much more well-versed in that subject. And that's the same with even research, right? Even though it's you, you're the one who's made all this research, by explaining it to other people, you get an even better grasp of, of maybe even just some other implications that you never realized. Or people can offer things like potential problems that, that might be in, in your paper, right? Simply just communicating and trying to communicate these ideas effectively is really critical. Well, and that's one of the reasons that I started this podcast too, right? Is, I mean, first off, it's really interesting for me to talk to some interesting folks, but it's also it's also helpful for them and it's helpful for the audience, but it's also helpful for the, the researcher, right? Because they get to try and put their perspective in a very layperson direction, right? And so I think since this is the first episode, I think viewers, as you see, as this podcast progresses, I think you'll sort of see, um, you'll be able to see that progression and get to the level of where we're at to some extent um, over the course of the podcast, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So I guess um, with that in mind, why don't we move on to talking about our layperson algorithm, um, the plebeian algorithm. So just as a little bit of background on it, um, essentially what we've done is we created an algorithm to help fight misinformation on social media platforms that we, we essentially did some data analysis, abstracted away a, a pure algorithm, theoretical algorithm, and then um, have come up with uh, various implementations of that algorithm, which we call the plebeian algorithm. So we try to optimize for um, freedoms of expression, um, as well as, you know, um, being able to reduce um, the, the effect of, of spread of misinformation. Um, so I'd love to perhaps hear, you know, um, a few, either one of you guys, if you want to have a take on what's, um, 
perhaps just do a quick conclusion, quick summary of the uh, the paper, like a few minutes or whatever. Sure. Just a general progression of how we got there, what sort of tools we used, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, did you want to do it there, Russell, or I'd be willing to as well? Um, or if you want to do like both, just split it half and half. One person does like up to the conclusion or up to the the discussion section, and then the other person does from discussion on. Can do that. Sorry, I'm just I got lost somewhere. So we're just doing a quick summary of the paper. So perhaps if one of you guys wants to take um, from the I beginning can... to section the section on discussion, and then the other one wants to take the discussion sure. to the end, that could work. Sure. Yeah, uh, I can I can definitely do that. Uh, let me just pull this up here. I didn't realize we'd be yeah. needing the the uh, the, uh, the no. manuscript. That's all good. But um, Fine. yeah, so I can I can maybe go through yeah. that a little bit. Uh, so I think sure. maybe for starters, it would be great to kind of talk about just kind of the the background for what we were we were doing. Why did we create this manuscript? And I think you've touched on it a little bit, Ben, about how we were in a competition. And more specifically, the competition's name was the Undergraduate Big Data Challenge uh, created by the STEM Fellowship. And this was a challenge proposed back in April uh, by this, this fellowship that are based in BC, I believe. I think it's Vancouver, mm. something like that. Yep. And uh, the event uh, was really around this idea of misinformation uh, on social media platforms that have been has been so pervasive, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it has really caused a lot of problems, honestly. Uh, and so the, the big challenge that was set for the groups that were participating was how can we tackle misinformation in, 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 in social media? And so we, we went around the problem, about the problem, and, and we had some discussions on it. And I will say, I honestly, my, my first thoughts when it came to, in fact, maybe that's something we can maybe even discuss a little bit about mm -hmm. is, is first thoughts. My first thoughts yeah, totally. when it first came to uh, the competition is why do you need to have someone controlling them or, or, or moderating this, right? My, my idea was um, by doing that, by trying to moderate in some ways, you're trying to prevent these topics from being fully discussed. Right. And it could end up silencing voices and these kinds of things. It's honestly a concern that's been raised by some people right, who have been have their have had their accounts blocked, who have had content that they've posted uh, censored. Right. Censorship has been a big problem in, uh, for some and has been a big complaint. And that's something we actually discussed in our paper where a lot of people who are using Twitter were actually very much uh, fed up with uh, this kind of censorship that they were experiencing ended up moving on other platforms things like 4chan reddit or you know even the biggest one was was parlor right which was very popular so it really seemed to me that moderating only just caused people to move away and move to places more more discreet more secretive where these these conversations couldn't be had couldn't be had out in the open um it really just didn't seem like a good idea right but we managed to discuss it a little bit more and my my ideas and my views on it kind of changed and i thought that perhaps maybe having some sort of moderation where you did have a careful balance between moderating some of the content but also ensuring that people still had the feeling that they could express themselves freely 
would be achievable and probably would be the best idea, the best way, really, of, of, of trying to prevent a lot of harmful, honestly, misinformation that has caused people to not accept the vaccines, uh, to taking really, uh, in my, my opinion, idiotic measures and idiotic um, choices that have just put more people at risk and in danger. So that was really just my, my first kind of opinions and thoughts on, on the issue. Um, how about you, yourselves? Um, Russell, if you want to go. Yeah, so for me, when I first heard about it, um, my mind immediately went to how big are we making this? Right. I was very concerned about the scale of everything, um, more so than the actual solution initially. Right. Um, because we only had how long, like a month? Ten days, I think. Ten days? Ten days for yeah, the initial we, Well, submission. for the initial one, we had a week. Yeah. More than oh, week. yeah. That's right. We did like we did not have very long. So I was like, I was thinking, really? we should probably do some like basic data analysis. Maybe I think we'll be discussed creating a website. I was, I was saying maybe like a small applet. We didn't want anything too big. And then, um, you know, writing about the analysis of uh, how that would work. Um, initially, I was really skeptical of the idea of doing the plebeian algorithm because I thought the scope would be way too large for us. Um, but as we discussed it a bit more, um, I think that the the data that was already out there uh, definitely made it a bit more doable for creating this like theoretical algorithm. Um, just a lot of research was was needed, um, and and it's difficult, right? Because you have to do the research before you can come up with a solution because you can't really have a solution before you do the research because then you're trying to affirm some sort of conclusion with your research right um so i think that it was that that initial phase of just like my first thoughts were how big should we make this and then what direction do i want to go in for the research and i really like the i think that at the end of the day we chose a really good direction well, I mean, evidently i mean we we did really well in the competition, so <laughs> I, I would hope yeah. so. <laughs> so yes, absolutely. So I think myself, if I just, I'll just touch on that briefly. I think that I had the idea of abstracting away an algorithm and trying to find the most pure abstract algorithm that we could use, but I didn't have the data direction working for me. Like I didn't, my thoughts weren't initially to, to run sentiment analysis, which is what I think we can get into um, once we get into some of the methodologies there. But I think that um, that wasn't like my direction. I didn't have any idea of how we would get there. I think my general idea was like, we should find an abstract algorithm that they can implement as opposed to trying to deal with like individual people or dealing with like a, a paper for the people. We were dealing with a paper really for data, well, not, or sorry, um, software engineers or um, you know, uh, business, a more business end of, of um, viewership, right? Or of trying to reach a more business audience. And I think that that was generally my thoughts immediately. And then, yeah, and I think it, I think it worked out. I feel like Russell had a general better idea for the data analytics side of it, of like what specifically we should be looking at. Um, so I think that was really valuable, but yeah. 
That's true. Yeah. I think that, well, at the end of the day, we all contributed. I mean, like, we couldn't have done it without the group, right? Um, well, I think it's really interesting when we talk about the ideas that we had because, like, when, when I, when I, for clarification for people watching, when I say I had an idea, it's not that I had an idea, it's that I saw something in my research, I said, hey, this is interesting, then we discussed it, right? Mm -hmm. So I found some research, might even be a better way to put it, because even if it came up in conversation, at the end of the day, the idea is developed by all of us because we start off with some grain and it sucks and then somebody says okay well your grain sucks and this is why and then we say all right well what if i do this and then somebody else the other person says that sounds cool and then the third person comes in and says actually no this is why it sucks and this is why and then we say all right um so how do we make that better and then three of us work on that and then the fourth person comes in and says you guys are all wrong entirely <laughs> and you have to rework everything yeah. But that's what's so wonderful about the whole process is that discovery, right? That's true. That's true. Well, it certainly was, again, a joy to really look into these these papers and articles, especially that one you had uh, mentioned, Ben, the whole, uh, I think, crowd, crowdsourcing or something? For yeah, crowdsourcing layperson algorithm, I believe it was called. That's right. Along those lines. That's right. Discussing mm -hmm. I'll put a link. similar to what we what we finally were addressing in our paper that was i think the turning point for us in many ways where we first started to go to this idea of creating an algorithm that created this online democracy right instead of just having as we saw it and as we i think i still see it today as somewhat of a of a an authoritarian i say that in very loose terms an authoritarian kind of control over information on on uh, social media because you simply have and that was something we, we, we went to was you simply have these companies, these social media companies who are the only ones who are controlling and managing this kind of flow of information. And our idea was, well, what if we just simply said we leave it up to the people? We let them decide what content they think is true and what content that they don't, because that's something that we've 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 had many discussions on. What is truth? Right. What is what is information? What is um but it's facts. And, uh, another angle for this as well, I think, could even go to like advertisability, if that makes any sense. Mm. I think that sometimes certain companies will be like, oh, we don't want this posted because if this post gets, once this post hits a certain size, if it gets too big, we're going to be in hot water if we don't remove it. Mm. So mm -hmm. I think that having that. Uh, one really great advantage of the plebeian algorithm is that it makes the moderation democratic. So you really won't get that from a large portion of your user base. Um, well, why don't we break down the plebeian algorithm? Because I don't think we've fully done that quite yet. True. Um, yeah, so it might be helpful to... Yeah. Actually, I think it'd be a really good idea if we pulled out... I think I can actually do this on here. Let's pull out the flowchart. Um, sure, if you want to try. Yeah, let me see. I, I might have to download the PDF. It's downloaded. And then it's on page something. Something or another. Page 13. You know, it might be, I'm not sure whether we're going to, how the video is going to work on this. So let's just, we'll just reference page 14. So if you want to take a look, I'll throw a, um, I'll throw, 
I'll throw the page number and the preprints because I think it might be different on the preprint in the description of the video. And if you want to take a look, viewers, and um, pull it up, um, that'll that'll work. Yeah, for sure. So feel free to reference. I, it's it. not going to be super necessary. It's a pretty simple algorithm. Um, there's three main phases of the algorithm. Um, so initially, the user is going to post something, and the algorithm is going to have to do a little bit of cleaning on that data. Because when a user posts something, um, it might be weird sometimes, right? Sometimes somebody might just post the word FART in all caps, and like the algorithm might not know how to handle that. The, is this misinformation? Is this information? What is this? The algorithm gets confused, right? So initially when somebody posts something, you're going to have to read the post and pick out if it's even a relevant post for like checking for misinformation. There will probably be a few keywords in posts that will make them uh, more or less uh, compatible with that. For example, if it includes maybe like a medical term or a scientific term, uh, then it might be f more likely to get put into the next phase of this, which is uh, after this data cleaning is done, performing some sentiment analysis, which is basically seeing how mean the post is. Um, and what we found is that when you look in at a specific subject on social media um, and you separate what's misinformation and what's not misinformation, and then you cross-reference that with the sentiment values of those posts, you find that misinformation uh, tends to be a bit more negative in sentiment in that specific, yeah, that. in that specific yeah. category. So if you have this category and you perform this analysis of how mean the post is, you can flag it for being kind of likely uh, for being uh, misinformation. Now, this isn't always going to be the case, of course. So we need some sort of second check. So then what we do is we're going to take a few users of some social media and we're going to call them jurors and jurors will be able to opt into a vote to say whether or not a post is misinformation. Um, once you get all of the jurors uh, reading the post, you check um, the average, whether it's true or false, and if it seems to be misinformation, you remove the post um, as per the jury, the people's will. Um, so that's the core of the plebeian algorithm. Yeah. Well, something so I think Kai, that's... Sorry, yeah. Um, no, go ahead. No, no, I, ahead. what were you going to ask? I was just going to say, if you want to maybe go off that and perhaps provide some of the more discussion aspects, like some of the stuff that like oh. we looked into, like some of the connections perhaps with naming, that kind of stuff. For sure, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the biggest thing when it came to discussions for us was, is this fitting our our vision our initial vision like is this still keeping true to uh preserving freedom of speech while also reducing misinformation i think it's important to note that when we were looking into it our hypothesis was kind of proven as russell discussed where we thought that misinformed posts would generally have more negative sentiment due to the fact that it seemed that more more misinformed posts generally were calling for action 
right? And generally that action, they were trying to inspire fear and, and hatred, right? Generally that's what a lot of, honestly, disinformation, that's, that's something I think was, was uh, um, defined as separate terms. There's misinformation, which is the spread of, mis of, of information that is false unknowingly, whereas disinformation is the knowing, uh, like the, the malicious uh, uh, spreading of misinformation, right? So um, that was something that, that we kind of had predicted and it seemed, it seemed to have turned out true. Now, when it came to, to other discussions, like I suppose future areas of research we want to apply this to, we also looked into things like naming conventions and how did the different names uh, that were used uh, affect the, 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 the overall sentiment? Like, could we find a correlation between using something like the Wuhan virus, right? Which is seen as perhaps a, a non-PC kind of language for, for referring to the, the, the coronavirus versus something like uh, coronavirus or even its more uh, scientific name like uh, SARS-CoV-2, right? Uh, and it did seem like, especially from, from some of the data we gathered from Parler, which seemed to offer quite a bit for us, uh, that seemed to really uh, distort the slopes um, when they did use uh, terms that were, as we considered, biological, right? So when they use things that were more biologic and, and scientifically accurate, uh, that term it tended to be more positive in sentiment. And so therefore maybe perhaps less misinformed posts, whereas the more negative uh, uh, sentiment posts tended to be, as we named it, geographic, right? And so that's naming things that were based off of like China or Wuhan or things such as that along those nature, uh, along that nature. Um, I think uh, so that was that was kind of generally the idea we had. We also filtered the data a little bit um, originally. So we take took a look at the took a look at the general data provided by um, provided by Twitter and Reddit and things such as this on the general sentiment overall of certain uh, channels and such. And then we even took certain filters to determine uh, whether or not uh, those would actually increase or decrease. The, the amount of, of negative sentiment, and that's indeed how we were able to prove that overall negative sentiment uh, was more associated with, with misinformed posts. So, uh, but something I think, again, just going back to this point of, of preserving this idea that we wanted to ensure that freedom of speech was constantly assured, and we kept having these very philosophical debates on truth, which was very important, and, and that's something that was constant in our in our research like as we kept researching these 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 ideas and trying to develop our, our idea of of this algorithm we wanted to always go back to this original idea which had kind of involved us in a more theoretical and very uh, out there concepts perhaps about what is truth and things such as this and uh, in many ways i think we came up with some really good ideas for instance one of the proposals that I was that I was offering, and I think that would be something that we might want to update the algorithm with, is by and I think we even saw this on Reddit, where posts you can either upvote or downvote, and downvoted posts aren't removed; they're simply just less seen by people overall, right? And so that was that was a proposal I wanted to have, where similar to that system, these posts would be seen just simply less overall instead of removed or censored. And, but also to have these posts perhaps reintroduced by the algorithm, perhaps a month later, or maybe in a couple of months later, to see if 
indeed this is still a misinformed post right because again we, we go back to this idea of truth is kind of an elusive concept and always changing there's always new debates on certain subjects and new uh, eureka moments i suppose on 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 debates and on, on uh, new discoveries and so perhaps what was false the day before is actually a fact the next day Right. So that's also something that we've 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 tried to look into to try and say, hey, can we also try to ensure is this a way in which we can uh, uh, try to ensure that um, the truthful information determined by by this online society isn't necessarily just dis dismissed because it wasn't simply, um, I suppose, introduced at the proper time, so to speak. Right. Because it wasn't considered a fact during its time right so mm -hmm. that's that's uh, yeah uh, something else to touch on so, is oh sorry nope go ahead oh i was just going to say um we also covered a lot of implementations of the plebeian algorithm um which i think is also very important when you're thinking about um like th this this overarching theoretical algorithm how would you actually use it on let's say let's say Instagram wanted to implement the plebeian algorithm, um, how do they do that? And that's sort of uh, those are some of the questions that we looked at. I don't think we actually looked at uh, Instagram in particular because data was hard to get, but um, we looked at Reddit, uh, 4chan, Facebook, YouTube, Parler, and Twitter, right? I think, yeah, um, that's, that's well. We also expanded that later by including things like YouTube, and uh, yeah, I think I, yeah, I think. You oh, said sorry, that. did you? Oh, yeah. sorry, my bad, yeah. my bad. Um, so something really interesting that I actually came across is that YouTube's very close to the plebeian algorithm when you look at it. So, um, when you're kind of looking for an example of how a company would implement the plebeian algorithm. You can actually almost look at YouTube. The only step that YouTube is missing is that democratic step. Um, for them, it's sort of an advertiser democracy. Um, it's not the people don't get to decide, the advertisers get to decide, which is understandable given their legal situation. Mm. Um, however, I don't think that um, I don't think that the plebeian algorithm would really allow for uh, advertiser unfriendly content either because that stuff would also get reported and downvoted and removed whether um, there might even be like a second portion to the plebeian algorithm where it's not is this misinformation but is this just too rude or too vile to go on the platform if the negative if the sentiment's so low that might be another option to put in the uh, the jury phase I, I don't know if we actually talked about that or not but well, I think that's totally that was part of like up to the implementation too, right? Yeah. Up to like the specific platform implementation, but which was a very the part. Oh, sorry. It was a very big part of our algorithm, right? Having that abstract applicable to any out any like social media platform existing, right? Yeah. Uh, really quickly, I just wanted to yep. go over the reason why YouTube is kind of plebeian like, and that's because of its um, like dislike and report features. Um, so realistically, it's more like, the, the plebeian algorithm is more like having a, a just the report feature. Um, but it, it is interesting that on YouTube, if you see a comment that appears bad, you can 
report it and it will actually get removed, which is democratic, I would say. I, I don't know how many reports it takes. I don't know the exact structure of that, but um, it is sort of plebeian algorithm-like, having that like-dislike system that ranks the comments and then the report system, which a lot of other websites have. Um, YouTube just... Uh, I don't know. It was it was very interesting. It's um, I, I think it's because the comments sections are so isolated that it ends up being a bit more plebeian like and also because the channel creators also have a bit more control over that as well. Um, their their individual comment sections, um, whereas when you look at something like Twitter, uh, creators don't have the ability to moderate their comments. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Well, not, I think that's. I think you right. can like maybe restrict comments or something, but like you can't, or you can like block people. But well, that's something we mentioned in our paper when we were talking about different methods utilized for handling misinformation. I think we compared eradication versus containment. Eradication. We brought up the example of Twitter and how any example or use of the word COVID nineteen has a government uh, website associated with that post. Uh, it's a very mm -hmm. point and shoot, I think, as we we said in, in, in the in the article, where it's simply taking a key word and assessing that as potential misinformation, or at least trying to combat misinformation by trying to address it as quickly as possible. Whereas well, uh, shoots, you'll shoot half of, or you'll shoot all the things that have COVID nineteen, and half of them will actually be misinformation, and the other half right. won't. Right. Right. So. That's your it's, issue. The other half very... are like scientists who are like talking about COVID and saying like, yeah. wear a mask, stay home. COVID is, you know, bad. Yeah. And then like, you know, well, it's or we definitely... had this many COVID deaths in Thunder Bay today, yeah. right? Like, well, it's that would get flagged as misinformation. A very, a very um, uh, roll of the die kind of thing. Like, yeah, you'll sometimes get something where, yeah, that's a good thing you had out there because that prevented perhaps one person from falling into this trap of misinformation. But at the same time, you're also uh, affecting people who aren't spreading misinformation, right? Who are just simply caught up uh, in the the general kind of um, attempt at quelling misinformation. They're the casualties, so to speak, of trying to quell misinformation, right? Which which can be fairly problematic, as we've discussed, right? right? This feeling of censorship. Um, and that's something where maybe containment doesn't uh, uh, do, right? Where containment is more along the lines of kind of what we're trying to propose, or we're trying to be more specific and really try to contain the problem, because in many ways you can't eradicate misinformation. The idea that, uh, that misinformation, you can just completely get rid of it, is a fairly naive and uh, unfounded claim. Right. Uh, and I think that's something that we really realized with our paper and, and, and the fact that we're very practical in the way that we proposed it. Right. We were very I mean, practical. And one difficulty is not just. It's really difficult to know what is misinformation. Mm -hmm. I think we've already touched on that, right? Like what is. True. It's yeah. a difficult question. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, so just to keep us moving along here, um, I have two questions and I'd like, this is going to be weird. I have two questions and I'd like both of you to pick one of those questions 
you, it can be the same question between the two of you. It doesn't matter. They're two separate things, right? So, you know, if you both want to answer the same question or if you both want to answer different questions, it doesn't matter. But mm. I have two questions. I'd like you to pick one of them to answer. And, you know, you can go in depth. Like if you want to do like, a, I don't know, five minutes or whatever is fine. Um, then we can probably wrap it up. But um, so my, my questions are, the first one is, if you were given the chance um, to rewrite the paper, what would you write it on? That's the first question. Like, what what would you do differently? What would you change? What would it be written on? Um, and then the second question that you could answer is, if you were given the chance to write a new research paper right now, another an additional research paper, what would you like building off of what we already have, right? What would you build off of our paper and research? Mm. And the reason that I ask these two questions is because I think that if someone's interested in researching this area, it might be a good way for them to get into it right now that they're kind of up to the level of where we're at. Um, it might be a good way to get into it. So I don't know, Kai, if you want to start. Yeah, I could do that. Absolutely. So for your first question about if I had to redo it, uh, what would I do? I mean, first of all, I think the paper we've written is great, so I, I don't think I ever would choose to redo it. But if I did, I probably would try to pick a topic, um, something closer to the long, along the lines of my original thoughts when we were first presented with the problem, uh, something where we're looking at how our current algorithms right now uh, for handling misinformation like Twitter and such, and that's actually we, something we include in our research paper already, but how are they doing uh, at at um, perhaps um, what's the word halting misinformation? Are they really that effective? And are there examples like is is just having an open platform uh, just a better idea to have, or should we actually have uh, modifications and restrictions to restrict information? So I probably would write a paper something closer along those lines. Uh, rather than creating an algorithm, especially because when we first came into this project, I personally don't have the the level of acumen uh, as perhaps you guys do when it comes to computer science in terms of coding uh, and somewhat of, of a beginner in certain senses when it comes to to, to coding and, and these these kinds of things. I'm more of an ideas guy, I suppose, an analyst. But um, so I probably would try to do something that, that would probably be a little easier for me to accomplish or more feasible. Uh, in terms of uh, a potential, I suppose, future area of research, perhaps, or something that you could add on to the paper, um, something that has really intrigued me when it comes to to uh, this paper, I think we've we've talked about it a little bit at least, was uh, how how something like this could be applied to imagery or, or or videos, right? That was something that was a little bit difficult for us because the the comment section are a great way of assessing and analyzing perhaps the content of the videos and these kinds of things. However, the content of the video is also fairly important and that could also be a very uh, good indicator as to whether or not it could be misinformation. Then again, how would you necessarily implement something like this, right? I mean, especially for a video, uh, would you actually have to have uh, whichever person is, is doing it watch the entire video? Probably, probably, but I don't know. Um, that would be certainly something that I think would be very critical. Well, for um, something interesting to talk about is that YouTube. Ah, that's what I wanted to mention about YouTube earlier. 
YouTube already kind of has a sentiment analysis built into their videos. Mm. Um, it'll look for certain like trigger words like um, swear words or uh, certain words that might be contra uh, certain like controversial phrases, that kind of stuff. And it will flag certain videos, make them harder to find, that kind of stuff based on those uh, those terms, based on what they think adver advertisers want. And um, that's but where it's still I, ultimately a, ultimately a point and shoot, right? It may be a machine yeah. like a neural network point and shoot, but it's still a point and shoot, right? Uh, kind of. It's more like they've done a sentiment analysis thing, but then they layer on top uh, specific subjects, which is kind of what the okay. plebeian algorithm has to do, right? Because um, I think we, we mentioned you can't just look at the entire platform sentiment because what if two people like what what if, what if somebody just types the word turtle what does that mean is that yeah right well I think we were talking about perhaps specifically looking at subjects involving politics or even just things that are more heated conversations yeah, yeah for sure and I think that YouTube has that they have a little thing that'll flag it if it's like my well, if it has politics with, or something, I think it's just uh, the way that they enforce it is a little bit sure. controversial. Well, that's that's exactly I think where where things get. And I apologize for perhaps cutting uh, cutting into your time. I know we want to finish this up pretty soon, and maybe uh, you want to answer yeah. the questions that Ben has proposed. But uh, something I really wanted to, to mention was the fact that while YouTube does have a very good algorithm and a very good um, program that it's running. Uh, the biggest problem is that at the end of the day, it's still a human operator that is that is assessing these kinds of things. It's one person who's assessing whether or not this is uh, a a bad if this is bad content and decides to remove it or not. Right? It's one person, right? And sure, yeah. you can have people informing their opinion whether or not that should happen. Whereas with something like this, uh, we're pooling not just from a small group who working at YouTube. We're pulling from everyone using YouTube, right? Yeah. We're pulling it from a much larger and people. I just want to give a couple of examples because I know that um, a lot of people don't really see the whole YouTube removing people thing. Um, maybe, and, and I can understand that because from different perspectives on YouTube, it can be difficult to see the, the censorship of certain content. So I want to give a few examples that I think will sort of convince everybody. Um, at least I think will convince everybody. One of them is the uh, censorship of um, certain LGBTQ uh, creators. I think that we mentioned that briefly in our paper. We uh, had an, a, an article on that somewhere. Um, I don't remember the exact reasons. I think it has something to do with um, the, the nature of content uh, described might have something to do with it and then um, just the way that the YouTube algorithm does flagging it's a little bit indiscriminate and so because it is just like an indiscriminate algorithm and um, you know there are certain weird words and it's just one guy kind of deciding it sometimes some uh, like just regular sex education content can just get completely removed or channels can get blacklisted um, the same thing can happen with um, harm reduction channels when it comes to like drugs and substances. I know that those channels will often get hit um, and like removed or even channels that want to show like weapons 
like if a guy who wants to show off his knives and his guns, he might get taken off YouTube because he's showing guns, which I, I mean, come on, let a dude show off his guns, you know? True. Um, so those are just a few not examples. Well, it's not misinformation, but this is examples of the YouTube algorithm sort of um, exactly. going wild, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of wanted to give those examples to sort of support that argument a little bit more. Um, but yeah, when, when it comes to just expanding the, the plebeian algorithm, um, I think that a very interesting area to look into would be conversation sentiment analysis. That is, um, finding where people are interacting with each other, like when somebody replies to somebody or something like that, uh, being able to identify that, and then being able to identify how, the, how healthy the conversation is, how productive basically it's going. Um, I think that having that ability uh, to like quantify that through some sort of algorithm, give it like a, how would you put it? Like, um, um, what's the word? When you're being nice to somebody, score. Kindness? Um, yeah, we'll go with that. Like a kindness score for the conversation. Um, I think that that would be very useful. Yeah, for sure. Well, I feel like that's probably a natural stopping point for us. Um, thanks, guys, for coming out. That was really awesome. Thanks for um, having us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think this was a good first meeting for or first uh, podcast for um, for my personal podcast. So I was really happy to have you guys on. And, you know, yeah. So thanks everyone for watching, and hope you all enjoyed. And we'll see you hopefully tomorrow for another interesting uh talk with another um yeah i think that tomorrow's guest uh, tomorrow's guest sounds pretty cool so that he is very cool yeah you should, you should tune in for that definitely see you guys then Take ciao care.